it is Christmas time. Some of you just got super nervous because you realize we're just a few days away and you hadn't even started shopping yet. I mean, how many of you have had your Christmas tree set up before Thanksgiving? Show of hands. Okay, we got to, and you notice that they're not confident in raising it all the way. We just partially, we, we've done. How many of you would say that you started listening to Christmas music before Thanksgiving? Anybody? I just want you to know, if you're raising your hand, there are people in this room right now who are judging you, right? There's strong sense of judgment in here. They're just sitting there polishing their halos as they judge you. And there, there's just this excitement that comes with the holidays, is it not? Like there's just things that you celebrate. There's family traditions that you have. Uh, there are things that you look forward to. But then there's also this other side of Christmas, and there's some people that don't put up their decorations before Thanksgiving, and they don't even listen to Christmas music during Christmas music because it's not the most wonderful time of the year for some people. Um, I, for one, have never been eager and excited when Christmas would come. My wife often will refer to me as being the Scrooge. Uh, maybe some of you have had that same name. Uh, I have personally have found Christmas at times to be stressful. Uh, trying to get family schedules aligned. Trying to get everybody at the same place at the same time. Anybody else, you're in charge of the family schedule. Um, how are we going to travel here? When are we going to travel there? Who are we going to see? Who are we not going to see? And then you, you, you balance the time spent with your family, with gift buying and you know, you got the people that are hard to buy for, the people that do we really want to spend money on them kind of people. And then, don't lie. Some of y'all just got to be honest. This is church. My personal favorite is going into our little small attic trying to pull out all the decorations. Like, it's incredibly uncomfortable trying to squeeze in this little hole to move this big box of how it even got in the attic for what I have no idea. But it's just a hassle. And it stresses me out every year that last year I told my wife, I said, Allison, those boxes are not going back in the attic. They're going in the garage where we have no place to put them. We are getting rid of stuff today. And I was just having a clearance sale and getting rid of everything because I was not going back in that attic. Or maybe going into crowded stores stresses you out. Trying to drive. And maybe you're not even going to the stores. Maybe you're just trying to drive down Rivers Avenue and everybody's trying to Christmas shop at the last minute. How many Black Friday shoppers do we have here? All right, we're going to pray for you too. I just was curious. These are the Black Friday shoppers are the ones that started listening uh, to Christmas music before Thanksgiving and they started putting up decorations before New Year's because uh, they never took it down. And, um, and then you have, you have things just like the crowded stores. And, and for me, like getting ready for Christmas Eve services over the last few years when you're, when you're working in a church, it's just stressful. And it's like, I don't want to be excited about this because it just seems like the most exciting thing for me was Christmas being over right? It was not really the most wonderful time of the year. And some of you feel the same way. And then there are other things that are tied to it not being the most wonderful time of the year for some of you. Maybe there's loss that you've experienced. Maybe there's some kind of tragedy or trauma that's happened. And it just is not the most wonderful time of the year. Maybe you were like me of just going, I just can't wait for the day after Christmas. And we used to have a family tradition before I got married, we'd burn the Christmas tree the day of Christmas. It was amazing. It was, see, some of you just, y'all just lost respect. I do want to tell you, I have regained the Christmas spirit this year. I was listening to Christmas music before Thanksgiving. My tree was up before Thanksgiving. My decorations were up before. I'm excited about Christmas this year. I have recaptured that spirit. But again, for some, it's not the most wonderful time of the year. 
But the thing about Christmas that makes Christmas to be such a wonderful time for us, and it, it makes it where it's, it's this thing that we look forward to, the thing that makes Christmas so wonderful, but yet also can make Christmas so terrible, is this tension at Christmas. And the tension is that Christmas tends to exaggerate all of the bad things that happen. And I know you're like, well, it's, but it's not. It's, it's the most wonderful time. But Christmas can tend to exaggerate some of the bad things. And I think that's exactly what Jesus was doing. To shine a light to expose the bad things. See, I realize the stresses that I would feel going towards Christmas, the Scrooge attitude, was because my focus got off of what was important. Because it got caught up in the busyness and the we got to do all these things that Jesus never really got to sit on the throne and be the God that He is because I pushed Him to the side to focus on the busyness. Lost focus. And it doesn't mean that you've lost focus if you're not putting your decorations up at certain times or listening to certain music. You lost focus when this holiday is not about Jesus. When He's not the center of everything. We miss it. Because sometimes Christmas exaggerates all of the bad. It exposes all of the bad. But at the same time, Christmas points us to something that's absolutely incredible, and that is Jesus. It is a direct point of helping us put our focus on not the things that are bad, but on the thing that is good. The thing that is the thing that we're supposed to be going towards, and that's Jesus. We, we lose sight so easily because what happens around us. It's easily to get distracted. So just this past Monday, I stood at the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. It's a weird place, by the way. I'm standing in this place in Bethlehem, and there's the Church of the Nativity. It's just the traditional site where Jesus would have been born. As you approach the church, there's this little door. It's about this tall. Even, yes, even I, short me, had to squat down to walk into the church. They call it the humility door because you have to bow as you walk into the presence of where the Savior was born. It's a great reminder. Uh, maybe when we build a building, we'll put humility doors. Um, as you walk in, it's peaceful. It's quiet. It's very surreal. And you get up to this cave, and I've got a picture of it. God took a lot of pictures because I felt like you needed to see it. Now, some people would say, man, the, the cave that Jesus was born in was really nice. Um, and, and there's also some, some thought that I thought he was born in a stable. He was born in a cave. Um, we'll get to that later on. But you walk down these steps. They, they've built this church over this spot. And, and you walk down, and you walk into this cave, and it's like the Spirit just kind of takes over you knowing that something special happened in this place. And in the center of the floor is a star that marks the birthplace of Jesus. And how do we know that? Well, the shepherds marked it. They didn't come from thousands of miles away, by the way. I, I walked to the shepherd's field. It took them about three minutes to get to Jesus. You stick your hand in the spot, and there's this peace that just comes over you. There's just this understanding that this is where Jesus is born. This was every prophecy that was foretold happened right here in this spot. You get up and you exit this cave. And you walk back out into the streets of Bethlehem. And you see the hustle and bustle. I mean, there's 
we had a picture of that too. When you, you immediately walk back out, you've got people selling things and cars and horns beeping and police officers everywhere. You have a Islamic mosque right across the street. See, Bethlehem is 20% Christian, 80% Muslim. The birthplace of Jesus. And, and as, I, as I walked out of that place of peace back into the crowded, busy streets, it, it just hit me that this is what Christmas has become for us. This is what the birth of Jesus has become. Is We see Jesus, but yet somehow we're not really seeing Jesus. We miss Him. Our focus is everywhere else besides where it should be. And what's happening oftentimes at Christmas and what gets exaggerated and what gets focused on is that Christmas we're reminded there are problems that maybe we can't solve. There are people that we feel like need to be fixed, but we can't fix them. There are things that need to be controlled and we can't control them. Expectations that need to be met, but yet we can't meet those expectations. But the truth of the matter is, if you and I were to pause long enough just to look in the mirror, and just look at ourselves just for a moment and do some in-depth questioning of ourselves. What we would find is maybe I'm the problem that I can't solve. I'm, I'm the person that I can't seem to control or I'm the person that oftentimes is setting expectations that other people can't meet. And it convolutes Christmas. So at Christmas, even though it's the most wonderful time of the year, but not because of what is happening, Christmas is absolutely the most wonderful time of the year because of what happened. What happened. It's not about the hustle and bustle around us. It is about the event that happened. It's about the birth of Jesus that happened. At Christmas, we celebrate a season where we look forward to this event that changed everything. When the birth of Jesus happened, they couldn't help but talk about it because here's this Messiah that had been prophesied about. This is the hope of a nation that was coming. This was the forgiveness of sin that was going to come be our sacrifice so that we could be restored back to righteousness with God. All their hope was wrapped in these swaddling clothes in this cave in this small town in the city of David. He's a center of history. But the most important thing about him being the center of history is that He sent His Son Jesus to become the center of our lives. That He would be the thing that would everything would revolve around. So when Jesus becomes the center of life, it centers our life on something that's stable. It centers our life on something that is hopeful. It centers our life on something that is consistent. And who in here knows that consistency is a good thing? His, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is hope. He is our peace. So our life is centered on Jesus. We have this sense of purpose. A sense of, I don't need to fear, even though there may be many things to fear, I don't have to fear. Because I'm centered in this hope and this blessing. Christmas is also the most wonderful time of the year because at Christmas, we're reminded who is for us. When the world is against us and the busyness is against us and people question your motives when you're trying to do what God's called you to do and it doesn't make any sense to them. And it may not even make sense to you that God told you to do it. And Christmas reminds us that God is for us. He looked down and heard the cries of His people. 
And He sends His Son to restore all things back to the way that they were intended to be. That's the message of Christmas. The, the darker things, they get more and more complicated in our life. And at Christmas time, everything gets to be a little exaggerated as we talked about. But at the same time at Christmas, we are able to focus the light of the world into our lives and reflect that onto the other people. Because it exposes things. Jesus was our light that exposed it. So at the beginning of the New Testament, we're going to find four Gospels. And you know them if you grew up in church. There's Matthew, there's Mark, there's Luke, and there's John. And all four of these Gospels are very interesting because when the Gospel writers sat down to write these Gospels, they wrote them from their perspectives of their occupations, tax collectors, fishermen, doctors. They wrote the Scripture on how they saw it. Even though it's the same stories, it's just a different perspective of the way that they saw the things that they experienced with Jesus. But John's Gospel is very different in the way that it begins. It's not the same as everybody else. See, for some reason, John takes a little bit of a different approach when he writes his gospel message. Unlike Matthew and Luke, John's gospel doesn't give us this big birth announcement that the king is coming. He doesn't start with that. He, he doesn't talk about Jesus' birth in the same way as the other one. The thing that makes John's gospel so unique was that when he wrote it, he was much, much older in age. He was up in his years. Probably didn't have a whole lot of life left in front of him. Matter of fact, a lot of our research tells us that John's Gospel is the latest version of all of the Gospels because he wrote it towards the end of his life. And that's profound. It's profound when we know that because when you, when you look at that and you try to understand it, what we find is John may have thought that what he needed to write down, he needed to do it with some urgency. Because there were some things in his life that he experienced that he knew that we needed to get in the Scriptures that needed to be written to people so that he could, understand, he could convey the message of, of the time that he spent with Jesus to point back that this man that we call Messiah that was born in Bethlehem is indeed who he said he was. That in the midst of a world that may be broken and flawed, he's the consistent thing. He's the hopeful thing. He's the peaceful thing. He's the one we got to God to. So here is John writing this down for all future generations. John was a storyteller. He's great at telling his stories. And you imagine if you're somebody who you sat at the feet of Jesus day after day. You witnessed the miracles that were happening. You were there when 5,000 plus people got fed. You were sitting in the boat the day that Jesus walked across Lake Galilee. You saw those things with your own eyes. And people were like, could you just tell me what it was like that night? Tell me what it was like sitting at that table knowing it was the last meal that you were going to have with the Savior. What was it like? And here's John pinning his words, sharing people with the people about his story. Just tell us what it was like. And you have this John who's the same person that describes God in a single word in 1 John when he said God is love. He's trying to wrap up and he's trying to make tie a pretty bow around all this to really just say, I don't have a whole lot of time. I just need to get this out. You ever been like that? Like, I need to tell you the whole story, but to cut the chase, here's the bottom line of what happened. This is what John is doing here in his old age. 
At his old age, he's experienced some loss that you and I maybe can't even fathom or imagine the things that John has gone through at this point. He's had friends that have been lost, that have died, that have gone away. Family members who have been persecuted and killed. He's lost in some ways. He's lost his whole society and almost his whole culture being Jewish because the Roman government has come in and taken those things from him. He lost those things. Because Rome at the time was ruled, ruling Israel. And all they wanted to do is get rid of the Jewish people. They wanted to, to, to stop this spread of Christianity as much as possible. So they did everything in their power to persecute their people. And John's not only a witness to this, but he himself has a target on his back. Now you understand the urgent. I've got to get this out. Because any day they can come knocking on my door. So John's alive during the time of Roman Emperor Nero. I don't know if you've ever heard of Nero, but Nero has become one of the most infamous men who's ever lived. During his rule, he murders his own mother. He murders his first wife. And there was some crazy lady that decided to marry him and be his second wife. She too was murdered while pregnant. For fun, Nero would take Christians to persecute him and would put tar on them and hang them as city streetlights as they had parties so they would have light to the party. It was a game to kill the Christians. And he was a tormented, twisted individual. And as Nero is in power, he sends this guy named uh, Vespasian. He sends him through Galilee, the, the area where Jesus grew up. And he sends him down into the Galilee area and he begins slaughtering thousands of Jewish people, friends, families, members of John. And as he worked his way through killing, they sent thousands of men, women, and children were sold in slave markets in Rome. John lived through that. John experienced that. And at the end of the first Jewish revolt in 70 AD, the temple that the Jewish people held in high esteem was destroyed. Their central place of worship destroyed. To this day, still has not been built back. Today, where the temple once was, stands an Islamic mosque where the Jewish people are so afraid to even step onto the temple mount, the best they can do is go to a western wall and pray. The welling wall. John lives through this. Family slaughtered. Millions of Jews killed. Over 3,000 Jewish people taken from the city of Jerusalem and they're sent off to be sold in these slave markets. John lives through that. By the time he writes this gospel account, his friend Peter and his friend Paul have been persecuted. They've been killed. They've been executed by Nero. Through all of the bloodshed, through all of the loss, through all of that chaos, we can't even begin to imagine what he felt. But here's the thing that we know about John. He never lost his faith. It was an urgency to tell the people in a bottom line what this was about. At the end of the Gospel of John, he writes this in John chapter 20. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. In other words, there was so much that could have been written, but I had to get some other stuff in here that was a little bit more important first. In other words, John's saying, I've just given you a little bit of a taste of what, what I experienced with Jesus. Just a little taste. And then he goes on to say this in John 31. He says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that He is the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in His name. What is John telling us? He's pointing back to the birth of Jesus. 
Don't let the busyness and the persecution and the loss around you keep you from understanding that He is still God and He is still Messiah. Don't lose hope in that. It's a stark reminder when He looks at the culture around Him. And John says, the reason I'm writing this gospel and leaving this with you, I'm hoping that after you read this account, that you won't simply be impressed by what you've seen. I'm writing this so that you might believe that Jesus indeed is Messiah. He is the Son of God. And that by believing in this, you're going to have life. And that is his premise and his motive. So in spite of what John's seen and experienced, at the end of his life with the destruction of everything important, and the loss of just about everyone that was important, John still believes that Jesus was the source, the center of some kind of life that went beyond physical life. So we're being reminded that Jesus was born in a time when it was very dark. It wasn't the best of times. But when he sat down to start this gospel, before he got into any of the narratives, here's what he said. And I believe that this is extremely powerful. The first words of John. He begins his gospel with the birth of Jesus this way. He says this in starting in verse 4. You probably know the first verse of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. The Word was with God. But when he gets to 4, he says this. In Him was life. Life. And the life was the light of men. No birth announcement. No genealogy. I want to get right to the point. You ask who the Messiah is, it is Jesus. In Him is life. Not just this physical life. There is an abundant life that can be found. Because in John 10.10, he would go on to pen the words that Jesus is the life. He is abundant life. He understood this concept. So in Him, Jesus, in Him was life, not physical. He's had all this time to think about it. He's had all this perspective. And he sums up his whole experience with Jesus in just these few words. In Him was life. There was something in that man that was different. The way that he talked to people. The way that he looked people in the eye. The way he carried himself. The way he spoke to the religion. There was something different about this man. And here's what you may not know. Many people have come into Israel and into Jerusalem claiming to be Messiah. And the Jewish people over multiple times have been let down. But John's saying, no, 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 no. Something different about this man. Prophecy points directly to this man of things that have happened. He says, because in him, there is life. Don't get caught up with the things that are around you. Focus on this life of who Jesus is. And this is a big statement because Jesus showed up on the planet and people, again, began to view him as the Messiah. They were thinking that Jesus was going to do... Uh, he was going to do this kind of warfare where he was going to overthrow the Roman government and was going to come back to the Jewish people. And they were sitting back waiting on when's the revolt going to start? When's the war going to start? So I, don't, I don't think they really understood Jesus. So there's a point in Scripture, and you may remember this, the night that they were in the garden praying and the soldiers came to arrest Jesus. Remember, the story tells us that Peter pulled a sword out and he chopped the guy's ear off. Now, I personally believe he chopped the guy's ear off because he was horrible with a sword. I think he was aiming for the head. But he's cut his ear off. And I think that his expectation was there was going to be this war that was going to break out. But what did Jesus do? He grabbed the ear of the soldier and put it back on and healed him. And then held out his hands and got handcuffs. And Peter's just sitting there staring. What in the world? Like, Peter thought, if I do this, we're going to start the revolt. We're, this is where it all starts. This is where the war starts. 
This is why I think we find Peter later on when they said, you were with that guy. I wasn't with him. I think this is why Peter began to deny Jesus. Not because, no, I don't, I don't know Jesus. I don't want to, out of fear. I think Peter was really saying, I don't know. I thought I knew him, but maybe I don't. Maybe I was looking at Jesus, but yet rather never really seeing Jesus. Because I thought there was going to be this revolt that was going to start. He missed the fact that Jesus was a God of peace. And so Jesus told them that the reason that they were all there and, and the reason that they, they were thinking that these revolts were going to happen, this is all historical. He said the reason that the, the disciples were there because they were going to go into every single nation with every single ethnic group and every single people group and they were going to preach life to them. They were going to make disciples of nations and that the that he and because for the, for the Jewish people they thought that Jesus was only for them it wasn't for us and Jesus is flipping it and saying no 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 this life is for all men it goes beyond this circle it goes down every alleyway every street it penetrates the hardest of hearts this message is for everybody isn't it funny that even in our place, our culture, our time, that even we kind of think the gospel is only for certain people. That this life that Jesus has given us is only for certain people. Well, <laughs> I, don't want to, I don't want to see them in heaven. They're pretty horrible people. You probably thought that. I'm sure you have in your darkest of moments. I have. I'm just saying. Last week. And, um, <laughs> but she's saying, no, 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 this light is for all mankind. And look what he says in verse 5. Again, he's starting off this. This is an introduction to his gospel. He says, the light shines in the darkness. I love this piece. The darkness has not overcome it. Has not overcome it. That is a promise. Your darkest moments of your life, Jesus is saying, darkness hasn't overcome it. It may seem dark, but you know what gets rid of Darkness. Letting the light come in. Letting the light expose it. How does Christmas become the most wonderful time of the year? Bring the light in to expose the bad. Christmas should drive us to our knees of worship. It should make us understand that things are... Christmas is a great reminder that Jesus came because of the broken people that we encounter. Because the brokenness that, that dwells within me. This is why Jesus is here. He says, in spite of everything that has happened... John says, everybody that has died, every experience that I've made, every person that has been executed, crucified, they did everything they could to take away the gospel. But yet it continues to go because Jesus is life and they tried to bring darkness, but Jesus is the light that exposes it and it will not be overcome. Won't be overcome. Think about it. John is a man that got news that the Apostle Peter had been executed and Paul had been executed. These are his friends. He knows these people. And maybe he's thinking, I'm, I'm an apostle and I'm probably going to be killed too. He was the guy that when he heard that the tomb was empty, he raced and ran to the tomb to find it empty. He thought the body had been stolen and he... I don't go, I mean, I typically don't go to graveyards and look into open graves. That's not my thing, but that was his thing. He did it. Jesus wasn't there. 
And John looks in this empty tomb and he has breakfast with Jesus later on after the resurrection. This was a John that was absolutely convinced that no matter what happens in life and no matter what he faced, Jesus was who he said he was and in him was life. In him was the light that exposed the things that needed to be exposed. Side note, John was thought to be the earliest, the youngest of all the disciples. He had a long life. Long life that he got to experience. He also was a little um, full of himself because in no other gospel does it describe John as being beloved. But in his gospel, he says, you know, I, John, the beloved. He gave himself that nickname. But not anywhere else do you see that. He had a long, full life. If we're going to get perspective on, the, on Jesus and the lifespan, John's the best one that we can go to. Because he will die alone on Patmos, even though they tried to kill him. It didn't work out. So he spends his last days of life pinning the words in the book of Revelation for us to try to figure out what in the world he was talking about and to give other people on certain TV shows things to talk about and make lots of money. But here's, here's, here's our whole point. Like, it's a lot of historical stuff, right? But it's important to understand where John came from. Because so often we read those words and we fly by them. But why would John choose to pin those words at the start of the Christmas story? At the start of why would he do that? Because John knew that the world was going to get darker and darker if we didn't be the light. But before you can be a light, you got to have the light on you. You got to have the light living within you. The, the, the issues and the things that Christmas may bring for you, the, the good memories, the bad memories, have to expose who Jesus is. In Him there's life. In Him there's light. So Christmas, we're confronted with the fact that there are problems that you and I can't solve and that you have problems that you can't solve. But Jesus can. And so, I want to close just by telling you this. I, I think that we have to be reminded in the midst of all the darkness that is on around us. Because I, I feel like just horrible news in the last few weeks. Sicknesses. People's struggles with their marriage. And it's just a constant reminder that we live in brokenness. Isn't it? And it's really hard to be the most wonderful time of the year when you're up against things that you don't, circumstances and problems that you don't know. But we got to set our eyes on Jesus to expose the things that need to be done in those situations. And I'm just reminded more and more that, that He's our light. He's our life. Paul would go on to say in the book of Acts that it's in Him we live, we breathe, and we move. Every fiber of our being is given life. It's the beauty of the gospel. I've heard it said that people talk about the gospel and it's just sharing good news and it's like God throwing you this life vest because you're out in this ocean and you're drowning and He gives you a life vest and He pulls you in. That's so far from the truth. Because in reality, what the gospel says is that you and I were dead in our trespasses. 
you and I were bodies floating at the bottom of the ocean, lifeless. And Jesus dives in, snatches us from the ocean floor, brings us back to the surface, and breathes new life within us. That's the gospel. There's nothing that you and I can do to save ourselves. It's all in the power of who God is. John says, in Him, there's life. There's life. There's a life that will happen that comes when we live in the teachings of Jesus. He overcomes. There's always hope. There's always a reason to believe. There's a God who hears our prayers. That's what makes this the most wonderful time of the year. Every day is Christmas. I love the Jew, Jewish people's holidays because, you know, in Bethlehem, they celebrate Christmas three times a year. Three times. We get one day. They celebrate three times a year Christmas. I think we need to be celebrating it every day because we have this hope. Because in Him was the light of all mankind, and that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Not then, and not now, and not ever. I want to pray for you this morning. Father, it's, as we look at John's words, is understand where he came from. We understand, as his perspective of looking back of those words, that he would choose to start the gospel. And, and he didn't write with intentions, God, of us even, him even knowing that one day that thousands of years later that we were going to read his words that he penned on that day. But the words that were written then are so true for us even right now that in him there is life. Some of us are trying to live life on our own. We're trying to make decisions that are outside of our control because you are the ultimate one who controls those. But God, I just pray that we would see you as the life. And when we have this new breath that is breathed into us and recognize you as our light, God, you will be our God through the darkness of the world. A consistent light. As your scripture says, a marvelous light. So I pray even in these moments that maybe there's stress that's on some of us. Maybe there's some things that are distracting us this Christmas season that are making us not even look forward to it. I just pray that we won't see Christmas at things that are just happening, but the event that happened, your birth, your life, your resurrection. So Father, I just pray in these next moments you would just use us, speak to us, and help us see the things that you would have us to see and bring conviction into our lives. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.